Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Turn in your Bibles, first of all, go to Hebrews 7, but also we're going to go to Genesis 14. We're going to, we're going to go to both of those, but I want to just show you in the book of Hebrews kind of where we've been. So if you go to um, at the end of um, chapter, well, in the middle of chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 10. Go to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. Is everybody there? We're going to be in Hebrews 7 tonight. But Hebrews 5, verse 10, it's talking about Jesus here being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The whole issue of Melchizedek was introduced back in chapter 5. And then in verse 11, he says, About this we have much to say, but you're sluggish. And so for all of chapter 6, he gives these warnings and then in chapter 7, he goes back to what he was beginning to say about Melchizedek. So it got me thinking, why is chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews to begin with? Why did the author feel the need to spend a whole chapter talking about Melchizedek? Anybody ever had a teaching on Melchizedek? Okay. Well, let's just do some review because it doesn't mean as much to us because we're not Jewish, but who was the original audience that the book of Hebrews was written to? Jewish people, right? Okay. They were possibly living in Rome. Some people say they were living in Jerusalem. Either way, what was the huge issue for these Jews? What was the whole, what's the whole reason that the book of Hebrews is written? There's a temptation for these Jews to fall back into Judaism and all the things that are surrounding Judaism. And so as we think about Judaism and we think about the Jews of that first century, the question is this, what was the main religious event that gave them hope as Jews? Not as Christians, but as Jews. It was the Day of Atonement. Because what happened on the Day of Atonement? All of their sins were forgiven for that year through the Levitical priesthood. Okay? When was Hebrews written? There's some debate about this. But let me give you a major date in biblical and in actual world history. Does anybody know what happened in 70 AD? It's a big date in world history. Yes, exactly. 70 AD was the year that the Roman soldiers marched into Jerusalem and they basically ransacked the temple, burned the temple down. And to this day, there is no temple in Jerusalem because it was destroyed in AD 70. What was destroyed in AD 70? The temple, along with what happened in the temple, the sacrificial system. So Hebrews was probably written sometime before the temple was destroyed because the writer seems to be writing about the sacrifices that are going on in the temple. So probably around 64 to 67 A.D. is when Hebrews is written. Okay? So what's the primary reason chapter 7 is here? 
There's always a temptation to put trust and hope in an external religious system instead of trusting in the grace of Christ. What were these Jews putting their hope in? A system, not in Jesus. And now they'd become Christians. They had rejected that entire system. That would, In the Old Testament, the system worked, right? It did what it was supposed to do in the Old Testament. Now that Jesus has come, is there any need for that system? No. <clears throat> so, there's this temptation to put hope and trust in an external religious system. Now, you may not struggle with that. But let's talk about northeastern Colorado. What's one of the predominant religions here in northeastern Colorado? Catholicism. What is, we're not picking on Catholics here, but what is Catholicism? Is it a religious system of external religious things? Is there a priesthood in Catholicism? Okay, so there is this whole idea of getting to God through what? A priest, the sacraments, and all of the things that you have to do externally to get to God. So it's no different than what was happening back then. Their hope was in the priest who would get them access to God through the day of atonement. And there's this lingering question that you probably never, you don't stay up late at night wondering about this. None of you have probably never lost sleep over this one issue. If you've lost sleep over this, I'd be surprised. Have you ever asked this question? This is what these Jews were struggling with. You probably don't struggle with it, but these Jews were struggling with this. How can Jesus be called our great high priest when he was from the tribe of Judah and not a Levite? You, you, you stay up late at night struggling with that question? You don't struggle with that, do you? Okay. So what tribe was Jesus from? Judah. Who were the Levites? Were they from the tribe of Judah? No, they were from the tribe of Levi. So their question in these Jews' minds is, now wait a minute. How can Jesus be our great high priest if he's not from the priestly line of the Levites? Okay, so priest question, big question. There's a big question. Well, how can Jesus be our priest when he's from the long, wrong lineage? He's not a Levite. He's, he's from Judah. And nowhere in the Old Testament do we ever see Judah giving the priesthood. What was the other big hope that the nation of Israel had? What did they hope would happen one day? That's, that there would be a new king like David on the throne. Okay? So there were two things that these Jews put their hope and trust in before they became Christians, but there was a temptation to fall back on it. They put their hope and trust in a sacrificial system under Levitical priests to forgive them of sins, and they put their hope in a coming king from the line of David who would rule and reign in righteousness. But here's the problem. Here was the problem. In the Old Testament... You go back to Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. There were detailed laws about how the Levitical priesthood was to work. And there were detailed laws about how the Davidic kings were to work. And here's the problem. No one person can serve in an office and be both a priest and a king at the same time. Did, you ever, does that ever, did that ever happen? Do you ever remember <clears throat> one time 
where a, a priest acted like a king or a king acted like a priest. There's one example, and it's from 1 Samuel 13. Saul. You remember the story of Saul? He's king, right? And Samuel's running late, getting to Gilgal, and the people are putting pressure on him. So what does is, what is King Saul do? He assumes the role of a priest and begins to sacrifice on behalf of the people. And what does Samuel do when he shows up? He says to Saul, you've just lost your kingdom. You've just lost your kingdom. Come on in, guys. You've just lost your kingdom. So, no king in the Old Testament was to act as a priest, and no priest was to act as a king, ever. The only time it happened was Saul, and he got the kingdom taken away from him. Except one person. There's one mysterious person that shows up in the Old Testament. Only two places in the Old Testament. Only two verses. And only for a brief period of time. And his name was Melchizedek. He's the only Old Testament figure who was both a priest and a king at the same time. So here's the point of Hebrews chapter 7. Melchizedek was the only person that fulfilled this role in the Old Testament. And when you get to the New Testament, Jesus is the only one that can fulfill the role of priest and king at the same time. So Melchizedek is a type and shadow, a foreshadowing of who Jesus was going to be. So the question is, how can Jesus... Jesus is from the tribe of of Judah, right? But the priests come from the tribe of Levi. So how in the world can Jesus from the tribe of Judah be a Levite priest? The answer is, the only way he can do that is to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Does that make sense? All right. Now, with that being said, let's turn to Genesis before we get to Hebrews. So we're going to come back to Hebrews 7, but I'm trying to to lay a case for it. Mysterious man shows up only two times in the Old Testament. We've got a story about how he shows up, and we've got a verse about how he shows up. So let's go to Genesis 14. This is after um, Lot was kidnapped by these foreign kings. Abraham musters an army, goes and saves Lot, and then all of a sudden, mysteriously, this mystery man shows up. So Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17, let's read the only place where actually in a story or in a narrative, this Melchizedek figure shows up. So let's start in chapter 14 of Genesis verse 17. After his return, this is Abraham, after his return from the defeat of Ketelorimar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right. What do we find out about Melchizedek? Well, his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. 
That's what his name means, king of righteousness. Where is he from? Who's the king? Who's the king? Who, what's, what city is he the king of? Salem, which later becomes Jerusalem. Salem, shalom. It means peace. So he is the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Those two, think of those two things, king of righteousness, king of peace. So he's a king. But what does the text there tell us in Genesis? He was also what? Priest of God Most High. Interestingly enough, this is the very first time the word priest shows up in the Bible. This is hundreds of years before Aaron and Moses and the Levitical priesthood. Actually, who's not, who's not even been born yet? Has Levi been born yet? No. No. Because Abraham hasn't had Isaac, and Isaac hasn't had Jacob, and Jacob hasn't had his third-born son, Levi. So the very first priest to show up in the Bible is this mysterious Melchizedek. He shows up, and he's also what? A king. He's a king, and he's a priest. And Abraham gives him food. He blesses Abraham. Abraham gives him a tenth, and then poof, he disappears off the scene. We don't have his genealogy. We don't know where he came from. He shows up mysteriously and vanishes mysteriously. This is the only time we see him show up in the Bible. Now, there have been various views throughout history as far as who is this mystery man. Martin Luther thought he was Shem, one of Noah's sons. Ancient Jewish tradition sees him as the archangel Michael. I don't hold any of these views. I think he was a literal historical man who was a literal historical priest and was a literal historical king who shows up mysteriously but holds both offices of priest and king. So it shows up in Genesis. Now, the only other time he's mentioned in the Old Testament is in a psalm of David. Who was David? David was the king of Judah. So a thousand years later, in Psalm 110... David makes mention of Melchizedek. The only other time he's mentioned in the Old Testament. He shows up in Genesis, shows up in Psalms. So Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. This is the Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Weird. This is a messianic psalm about a coming king. David is giving a psalm about a coming king that's going to rule in righteousness. But what does he say about this coming king that's going to rule in righteousness? This coming king is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Which means what? Jesus is going to come, this future king is going to come, and he's going to hold the office of both priest and king at the same time, just like the only figure in the Old Testament who ever did it, the mysterious Melchizedek. That's all we know about Melchizedek from the Old Testament. Now, when we get to Hebrews, in chapter 7, he's going to give commentary on this and fill in the gaps for us. But before we get to Hebrews 7, does that make sense? This mysterious man, 
He fulfills two roles, king, priest. It's a prophecy, a foreshadowing of Jesus coming as king, priest. The big issue that these Jews are struggling with, trying to wrap their minds around it is, I don't know who Melchizedek is, just like we don't know who Melchizedek is. And they're thinking to themselves, how can Jesus come and be a priest when he's not a Levite, when he's from the tribe of Judah? Now, again, I say you guys don't stay up late at night worrying about that difficult theological problem. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And let's read what the writer tells us about Melchizedek. Let's just look at verses 1 through 10. And he's going to give commentary. The one thing I really like about this, I find it actually kind of fascinating because, remember, this is a sermon that he's preaching, one big long sermon, and he's doing expository preaching in this sermon. He's going to tell us what Melchizedek's name means etymologically, etymologically. So like, for example, on Sunday mornings when I say something like, the Greek means this, or this word in Hebrew means this, he's going to tell us that in his sermon. That's why we as pastors do that, because we have a model of it in the Bible. So let's read Hebrews chapter 7, starting in 1, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay. Anybody confused now? The writer of Hebrews tells us three things about Melchizedek. And we saw this in Genesis. He's basically given a commentary on what we just read in Genesis. His name translated means king of righteousness. Melech is the Hebrew word for king. Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. And you put those things, Melech Kezedek, it's the king of righteousness. He tells us that. That's what his name means. So first of all, he is a king of righteousness. But also, he's the king of Salem, or the king of Shalom, the king of peace. Now, I want you just to think about those two words. Peace, what are the two words? Peace and righteousness. So, etymologically, just his name, what does his name mean? King of righteousness. Where is he from? Salem. So, he's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. Do we have anywhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that prophesies about a Savior coming, a Messiah coming, who would be a king of peace and righteousness? Why, yes, we do. And at Christmas time, we read it all the time. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Think about this. 
For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, what? Prince of peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end out of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this do you see anything in the prophecy about jesus being born at bethlehem that relates to king melchizedek peace righteousness jesus christ will be the prince of peace melchizedek was the king of peace jesus will rule with justice and righteousness as the david king while Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. The third thing he tells us about, and this is a little difficult, he had no genealogy that would qualify him as priest. Now, when it says he had, verse 3, he had no genealogy, he's without father or mother, neither beginning nor days or end of life. This doesn't mean that he's some mythical or angelic being that, that just kind of popped out of nowhere and didn't have a mother and father. That's not what the writer's saying. What does genealogy mean? Why do you do a genealogy? To trace ancestry, to see if you like just to see if you qualify to be on the throne or to qualify to be the next in line, you have to trace your ancestry back to make sure that you're of the right lineage. Okay? Can Melchizedek trace his lineage back and say there was anything there that qualified him to be a priest? The Bible doesn't tell us. But what happened with the Levitical priests? What happened? If you were a Levite priest, who did you have to trace your lineage back to? Well, you had to trace it back to Aaron, who was from the tribe of Levi. So you had to be able to be a Levitical priest, a Levite priest, you had to be able to trace your lineage back to Aaron. This man, Melchizedek, had no qualifications here um, that would make him to be priest he, he was simply a priest and he predated Aaron and his sons okay now I'm not going to get into a bunch of weird stuff because it's too confusing verses 4 through 10 uh, that's for another day basically I think the point of it is is that Melchizedek was a key priest way before Levite was and again I say this is not a thing you struggle with none of you go home tonight thinking why is Jesus from a Levite priest when he's from the tribe of Judah and this doesn't make sense. None of you are losing sleep over that. So I don't think we should lose sleep over it. I think the, right, the point of the writer is to say Melchizedek is the only New T- Old Testament figure who was priest and king at the same time. He was the prince of peace. He was the king of righteousness. And he's a prefiguring of Jesus. Okay? Now let's get to where he makes the comparison to Jesus. Okay? Let's read verses 7 I mean, chapter 7, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Because here's where we really get into the meat of what we're talking about tonight. Now, verse 11, Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, 
And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope was introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And verse 25 is the most important verse in chapter 7. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. <clears throat> for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right. The point that he's making here is this. The Aaronic or Levitical priesthood that Moses set up in Exodus was never meant to be a perpetual priesthood with one person being a priest forever. Why? When they got old, they died and they had to have a new priest. Okay? And so Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And the writer here says, nowhere did Moses ever say that Judah would have the priesthoods. It would come from Levi. So the big question they're struggling with is, okay, if the priests come from the Levites and Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, how in the world can Jesus be the great high priest that is our great high priest? And then he argues that basically he's in the order of Melchizedek. So what qualifies Jesus to be our great high priest? Well, he answers that. Solely on the basis of him being the resurrected son of God, not on the legal requirements of coming through the lineage of Levi. Where do you see that there? You see that in verse 15 says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, in the likeness. So in the likeness of Melchizedek, what is Jesus? He's a king and a priest at the same time. And he became a king and a priest not based upon the legal requirements. It wasn't because Jesus descended from Levi, because he didn't. Who did he descend from? Judah. What's the only thing that qualifies Jesus to be the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek? There in verse 16. It was by the power of an indestructible life. 
What's the, what, what qualifies Jesus to be our great high priest? He rose again and he's alive today. Did God ever swear an oath when he established the Aaronic Levitical priesthood? We don't ever see God swearing an oath. He basically just commanded it in Exodus 28. There's no mention of an oath. But here, he's quoting Psalm 110 that we saw earlier, that God swears an oath and will not change his mind that Jesus will be a priest forever, not after the order of the Levites, but after Melchizedek. Okay? Now, I don't want to get all wrapped up in this whole Melchizedek thing because I want to focus in on some things that are going to be a little bit more closer to home. Okay, So verses 22 through 26 is really where I want to camp out because this is the meat of why Jesus is important to us. Okay, So what does verse 22 say? Jesus is the guarantor of what? A better covenant. Now, this word guarantor or guarantor, guarantor, I don't even know what, how do you pronounce it? I say guarantor, but the ESV says guarantor. It must be an English way of saying it. What does your translation say? Guarantor. guarantor. It's the only time this word shows up in the New Testament. It's a legal term. And here's what that word means. It carries the idea that Jesus is the actual one who accepts the legal obligations of the covenant and he himself is the guarantee. So what happens if Jesus dies? The, the guarantee goes away. But what do we know is going to happen? Jesus will never die, so the guarantee is forever. That's why it's a better guarantee. What was the old, why was the old covenant, why is Jesus better than the old covenant? What was the problem with the old covenant? The priests died. There was a continuous sacrifice. How long did the Day of Atonement sacrifice last? A year. And then it had to be done again. And then it lasted another year and it had to be done again. So year after year, bull after bull, goat after goat, priest after priest. And even then, what did the priest have to do? He had to go in and sacrifice for his own sins before he could go in and sacrifice for the people. So even this priest himself was not perfect. And so what is the better covenant? Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Or to make it in terms we understand, the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 prophesies about the new covenant that God is going to make. And we'll see this later on in the book of Hebrews because he comes back to it. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is God speaking in the Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? New covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day <coughs> excuse me, that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So this is going to be a different type of covenant. It's not the Mosaic covenant that God made with Israel when they came out of Egypt. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? Within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Where was the law written in the old covenant? On stone tablets. Here God says, I'm going to put my law in your heart. 
I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Why is that the new covenant? Could that last statement, I will forgive their iniquity, could that be said? Absolutely. No, because it was only based upon the Day of Atonement. And it was only good for a year. And then it had to be atoned for again and again and again. And I had mentioned this earlier. What's verse 23 say? The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. What was the problem in verse 23? (laughs) Each priest eventually died and they had to be replaced. In other words, they were sinful men who could not hold their offices perpetually. Anybody know the lineage? Who was the priest after Aaron, the high priest? It was Eleazar. After Eleazar died, it was Phineas. Josephus, the Jewish historian, has calculated from Aaron up until A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. You want to guess how many high priests that they calculated? 83 high priests from Aaron up to A.D. 70. That's a lot of high priests that they just kept going through and going through and going through. But does Jesus need to be replaced because he died? (coughs) No. He holds the permanent priesthood. Now, here's where I want to camp out, really, on verse 25. If there's one passage of Scripture in Hebrews that I would memorize, that I would meditate upon, that I would draw hope from, it's Hebrews 7.25. Because of His death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to heaven as the living Christ, Jesus is able to save to the, what? Uttermost. What does your translation say? Does yours say uttermost? It's an interesting Greek word. It really means completely, forever, absolutely, once and for all. I want to hear you the different translations. ESV says um, uttermost. What does yours say? Completely. Anybody else have something different? Besides completely, absolutely, uttermost? Always. Okay. So think about the implications of this. If Jesus' saving of you is absolute, is uttermost, is complete, is forever, then think about these things in your life. Jesus saves us absolutely and to the uttermost from what? From all of our sins. If you're a Christian, is there any sin out there on the day of judgment you're going to be held accountable for that Jesus didn't pay for? No. He's able to save you to the uttermost from any weakness that you may have. Anybody here weak? Anybody here need to be delivered from weakness? What about trials? Anybody have any trials in their life? Nah, we don't have any of those. Anybody have any persecutions? What about temptations? So Jesus is able to save to the uttermost what? 
He's able to save us from our sins, from our weaknesses, from our trials, from our persecutions, from our temptations, from what? From death itself and ultimately from final judgment. Now, what does the rest of that verse say? That's the most, he is able, he is powerful, he has absolute power to save you to the uttermost. Why? Well, because he died on the cross and rose again, but what does this verse tell us that he's doing right now? He always lives to do what? Make intercession. Which means that Jesus is always making intercession for you. He's always living since he's resurrected and exalted and enthroned in heaven. And what's he doing there right now? Right now, he's always living to make intercession. This was prophesied in Isaiah 53, 12. The, the great servant, uh, the servant song of Isaiah 53 about Jesus. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes what? Intercession for the transgressors. The parallel verse to this is Romans 8, 31 through 34. The writer of Hebrews and Paul will say the same thing here. The writer of Hebrews here in verse 25 is saying, Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. At the right hand of the Father, because of his finished work on the cross, he's interceding for you right now. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says it in a little different language, but basically the same concept. Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? Interceding for us. I want you to see something that Paul does here. Paul ties the work of dying on the cross. So he ties the death of Jesus. He ties the death and the cross to the intercession of, of, of Jesus for us. So Jesus dies on the cross. He rises again and he intercedes. And who's he doing this for? What's the text say there? He's doing this for the elect, for God's people. F.F. F. Bruce is a great New Testament scholar from England in the last century. He's written some really good commentaries. Here's what F.F. F. Bruce has said, and I like the way he's worded this. He said this, His once completed self-offering is utterly acceptable and efficacious. His contact with the Father is immediate and broken. His priestly ministry on his people's behalf is never ending, and therefore the salvation which he secures to them is absolute. Now, we're going to talk about a theology that maybe you've never thought about before. We talk a lot about the cross, do we not? Talk a lot about the resurrection, talk a lot about the second coming, talk a lot about Jesus' life and teaching. When was the last time you talked about the intercessory work of Jesus right now? 
what Jesus is doing right now. We have two verses. He always lives to make intercession. So here's the big question we've got to ask. What exactly is Jesus doing right now interceding for us? The Bible doesn't give a lot of information on this. It just tells us that he's doing it. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he's making intercession. Now, there's three things that we can think about, that we can make some statements about what Jesus is and is not doing. Number one, he's not doing a second work to pay for our sins, obviously, because when he was on the cross, he cried out, "Is finished. What he's doing is he's, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So the intercessory work of Christ is not a second atonement. He's already completed the work. He's seated because the work's finished. So it's not like he's doing a second, like, a second work of, of a redemption. He's already completed it. Here's another thing that you need to understand. He's not sitting there at the right hand of God somehow begging God to accept you. <laughs> God, please accept them. Does Jesus have to beg God to accept us? What did Jesus do on the cross? If he literally died in our place and took the wrath of God in our place, then when he died for us, he cleansed us and made us acceptable through the cross. So then what's he doing then? Here's what I think he's doing. He's providing ever-present help for us in the temptations we face and the pressures to drift so that we won't fall away. What has Hebrews been about so far? Don't drift. Don't fall away. Hold fast. Stay strong. Keep the faith. Anybody here weak? Anybody here can do that on their own? Anybody need the intercessory work of Jesus to keep that going for you? So when we approach the throne of grace, we realize that Jesus and His intercessory work, because of His finished work on the cross, is basically giving us the help so that we will persevere to the end. In other words, Jesus is praying that we don't fall. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about Jesus praying for you? If Jesus prays for you, is his prayer going to be answered? You better bet it will. Is Jesus going to make a prayer and not have it answered? If that's the case, then Houston, we have a problem because even how do we know our prayers will be answered if Jesus' prayers aren't answered? So if Jesus prays for something, it's going to happen. And let me, give you an, let me give you an illustration of this. Maybe you've never thought about this. We have an example of Jesus' intercessory work while he was on, on earth. And here's a question you may have thought about. Why did Judas fall beyond redemption, and yet after Peter's betrayal, he was restored? Big question. Did not Peter deny Jesus three times? Did not Judas betray Jesus once? Why did Jesus go hang himself and was the son of perdition, but Peter became the leader of the church? What's the difference between the two men? Let me tell you what the difference between the two men is. The intercessory work of Jesus on behalf of Peter. Now, you say, where do you get that, Pastor Sean? I'm glad you asked. Luke 22, 31-34. Listen to the words of Jesus. This is talking to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, what does that mean? Satan wants you, Peter. Satan wants you to fall. Satan wants you to, to, to uh, betray me beyond, beyond repair. Satan wants you to go to hell, Peter. But notice what Jesus says. 
but I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. What's the only reason that Peter didn't fall the way Judas did? It's because Jesus was praying for him. Now, by implication, we'd have to say, the Bible doesn't say it, but we have to make an inference that Jesus was not praying for Judas, because if Jesus was praying that Judas would not fall, then obviously his prayer didn't get answered because Judas fell. So what Jesus was doing for Peter that Peter might not fall, Jesus is doing for you right now. That's a weird concept to wrap your mind around, that Jesus is interceding, Jesus is praying, Jesus is there for you, that you won't fall, that you will stay strong, that you will make it to the end. And why do we need that intercessory work? Anybody here do that in their own power? Anybody here have the faith to, to face your trials and temptations and persecutions? No, none of us do. What do we have? Think about this. When you, think about this practically in your life. When you're struggling, when you're tempted, when you're going through trials, when you're feeling low, what do you need to remind yourself of? Jesus died for you. And not only that, he's interceding for you that you won't fall, that you'll make it to the end. So because of the finished work of Christ and his intercessory work of Christ, you're going to make it. Not because you're all that, because Jesus will ensure that it happens because he's interceding on your behalf. Okay, it gives you great confidence. Now, the question then becomes, well, if Jesus was a sacrifice and all those Aaronic priests had their own sin, and they died off, how can Jesus' sacrifice, how do we know it's going to be acceptable to God? Now, we know the answer to that, don't we? He was God in the flesh. Jesus is not a mere human who needed to atone for his own sins along with the people. <clears throat> now, let's look at these adjectives that are used there. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, Innocent, unstained. Three adjectives. Holy, innocent, unstained. Okay, what does Jesus, what do those three words mean? Jesus as holy means that he's set apart as pleasing to God. He's holy. He's set apart. But not only that, he's innocent, meaning that there's no guilt or wrongdoing in Jesus. Think about Jesus as a teenager. Never once sinned in thought, word, or deed. Never cussed at Mary under his breath when she asked him to go take out the trash. Never cussed when he hit his finger with a hammer in Joseph's wood shop. Never sinned once in thought, word, or deed. He was innocent and he was unstained. He's absolutely pure. Now, we have two other descriptions of Jesus that are tied together there as well. He's separated from sinners. Now, that doesn't mean that somehow Jesus didn't eat with sinners or Jesus wasn't around sinners. We know from the Gospels that he what? He was a friend of sinners. He, he hung around tax collectors and prostitutes. Separated from sinners means that he was human, but he had no sin himself, like, like sinners. And he's exalted 
above the heavens. Could that be said of Aaron? Could that be said of any of the Levitical priests? Could that even be said of Melchizedek? Listen to what God tells Aaron to do in Leviticus 16, 16. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. But on the day of atonement, before Aaron could go in and make atonement for the entire nation, he had to atone for himself first. Did Jesus have to do that? No, because he's perfect. Look at verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins first and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this, what does the word say? Once for all, when he offered up himself. Once for all, once for all time. It was once. What did Jesus do? He offered up himself. He offered up himself, never to be repeated. He offered himself up. Think about this whole idea of Jesus offering himself up as an offering, as a sin offering. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands when he offered himself on the cross once and for all. Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, a sin offering, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's the bottom line. Jesus' death on the cross was powerfully effective and unrepeatable. And because he lives enthroned in heaven, he grants us as his people immediate access to the Father. What does chapter, I mean, verse 25 say? He's able to save to the uttermost completely, absolutely. Who? Those who what? Draw near to God through him. What's the only way we can draw near to God? Through Jesus. Why? He's the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What has he done? He's able to save to the uttermost. What's he doing now? He's ever living to make intercession for us. Now, I debated whether I was going to do this, but I'm going to open up a proverbial can of worms and address a very controversial issue. And let me say from the beginning of this issue, you absolutely do not have to agree with me on this issue. You, as a matter of fact, can disagree. And you can disagree vehemently. And you can say, Sean, you're out of your mind on this. So before we start this, let's do our little drawing that we do from time to time. We've got dogma. We got doctrines and we got preferences. You guys have been lying around long enough. What are dogma? Dogma are those absolute beliefs that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. Dogma are the virgin birth, the Trinity. Jesus is God. The fact that Jesus died on the cross. The Bible is God's word. There's heaven. There's hell. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Um, the, the, the essential beliefs of Christianity. Then a second tier, you have doctrines. These are things we can agree to disagree upon, but that we can have strong opinions about. 
For example, can you lose your salvation? That's a doctrine. Do you baptize by immersion or do you sprinkle? Do you speak in tongues or do you not? Um, do you have a different view of the end times than I do or whatever? Are you postmillennial, premillennial, amillennial, or panmillennial? It's all going to pan out in the end. Then you've got our election and predestination and, and different views of that. Then you've got preferences. I like a praise team. I like a choir. I like the King James. I like the NIV. I like blue carpet. I like red carpet. What things are the most important? Dogmas. And I've told us if our church is going to split or there's going to hill we're going to die on, it's going to be over dogma. Now, there's some strong doctrines we're going to fight for at Emmanuel. Like eternal security, the fact that you can't lose your salvation, like baptism by immersion, that the Bible is God's absolute word, definitions of that human sexuality and gender, um, male leadership in the home and in the church. Those are some strong doctrines. What I'm about to share with you is not a dogma. It's really not a preference. It's a doctrine. So because it's a doctrine, what does that mean for you? You can, we can walk out of here and disagree. We can have strong opinions on it, but at the end of the day, at the end of the time, it's not going to matter. So what I'm going to share with you is a doctrine that's controversial that I want to expose you to just to have fun tonight, to make you a little jumpy. Is that okay? You're like, what's he going to talk about? I want to push your buttons. So here's the question that I'm going to ask in this controversial issue. I'm going to ask it multiple ways. What was God's intent and extent in the death of Jesus on the cross? Let me ask it another way. For whom did Jesus specifically and particularly die? Or let me ask it another way. Does Christ die for and intercede on behalf of the same group of people? And if so, then did those for whom... Oh, and if, if so, then did he did... <laughs> that doesn't make sense. If he, and if so, then did he do the same thing for those who never believe? Does... Yeah, did he die for those who would never believe? Did he die? Yeah, did, 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 didn't he did? Did he die? <laughs> does Jesus die for the world, and yet those who do not trust him end up in hell? Does, gener, does Jesus intercede on behalf of those in hell? Here's the question. Does Jesus die for the sins of every single person who's ever lived, past, present, and future, or does Jesus die specifically for those who will believe in him, the elect? That's the question. Oh, okay, so, so you've, well, I'm just asking that this is a very controversial issue because depending on what church background you've grown up or what theology you're from, you would be like, I can't believe he's even asking that question because I thought Jesus died for everybody that ever lived. And why wouldn't Jesus die for every single person who ever lived, past, present, and future? And before you answer that, let me just challenge you with one statement. What about people in hell right now? Is Jesus interceding for people in hell? Let's ask you that question. Is Jesus interceding for people in hell? And if you say yes, what's he doing for them? How is he interceding for them? 
Okay. Okay. People in hell are lost. Okay. Actually, in the Old Testament, wasn't there a beggar that actually was in hell? I mean, he was in heaven, and the rich man was in heaven. Yeah. And yeah, I was in. Yeah. That. Okay. So, would we agree? Let's just talk some theology here. I told you guys you're going to get mad and get a little comfortable. <laughs> is hell is hell a place of eternal conscious torment for those who do not believe in Jesus? Yes. Okay. Are those in hell suffering God's wrath? Okay. Are those in hell at peace with God? Are those in hell have their sins been paid for? Okay. <laughs> this is where it gets nuanced. If you're in hell, were your sins paid for? I'm getting you guys riled up. I mean, I'm, agree- I'm agreeing with you, Candace. But I'm saying that if a person is in hell and they're suffering in hell, then they're in hell for a reason. What's the reason they're in hell? Okay. There's an Old Testament scripture that says some people have wanted to condemnation. Okay. So they're there because they were condemned. Okay. So let's ask a question. Do you go to hell because, number one, you reject Jesus? Would you say yes? Okay. Let me ask you a second question. And don't answer this, Risa, because we talked about this in staff meeting. What happens to the person who's never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus and reject him? Where do they go? They go to hell. They don't go to hell because they've rejected Jesus because they've never heard about Jesus to reject Him. Why do they go to hell? Because of their sin. So, sin ultimately sends you to hell and rejecting Jesus sends you to hell and hell is a place of God's wrath. Okay, if Jesus died on the cross to take God's wrath then why are you in hell suffering for the wrath that God already, or that Jesus already took in your place? It seems like you're suffering double jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Jesus died for your sins on the cross and, you, and he absorbed God's wrath, but yet you have to suffer double jeopardy in hell for a sin that's already been paid for. Now you may say, well, it's because you didn't accept Jesus. Okay, so that comes back to the question. Does Jesus, and here's the controversial question, does Jesus die on the cross for every single person who's ever lived past, present, or future, or does he die particularly for a group called the elect? That's the question that you have to struggle with tonight. That's the can of worms I'm opening. Okay, I'm not saying that you have to come to a conclusion tonight, but what I want to show you is this. There is an intrinsic relationship In the priestly role of the Old Testament priest and Jesus, there's an intrinsic role between atonement and intercession. In other words, those whom the priest atones for are the same people he intercedes for. And what did Hebrews 7.25 say? Jesus always lives to make, he makes intercession and he makes atonement. The question then becomes, does he make atonement for one group of people, but only make atonement for us? He makes atonement for everybody, but he only makes intercession for people who are believers. 
Does that make sense? Can you divide up his atonement and his intercession? Now let's go to the Old Testament for a moment. In the Old Testament, God prescribed the priestly garments to be worn in the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Okay, so the priest, the high priest Aaron, when he went into the Holy of Holies to sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people, he had to wear certain garments. Okay, holy underwear. It's called, and this is not the Mormon holy underwear. Um, this is the. Um, I just. This is ironic. So Exodus chapter thirty-nine, six through seven prescribes what Aaron was to wear or the high priest was to wear when he went in there. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold, filigree, and engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. So picture in your mind two stones on each shoulder of the high priest. On one set of stones are the six of the tribes of Israel inscribed. On the other set of stones is the other six tribes of Israel described. Why is he wearing the names of the tribes of Israel when he goes in to make intercession? As a remembrance that by name he's carrying on his shoulders God's people. Okay? On his shoulders. Now, let's go to Leviticus 16, 3-5. In the same way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat... And, how, and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist, and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water, and then put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one for a burnt offering. So he goes into the Holy of Holies wearing the ephod. So when Aaron, as high priest, entered into the Holy of Holies to make atonement, what was he wearing? The linen ephod with the 12 tribes of Israel embedded as a memorial. We also find out that they were also on his chest, near to his heart. Three, 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 three. Four rows of three. The names of the tribes of Israel on his chest, near to his heart, the names of the tribes of Israel on his shoulders, carrying them. And when he goes into the Holy of Holies, what is he doing in the Holy of Holies? He's interceding on behalf of the people. Now, what are the two things that the priest did? If you go in the Old Testament, the two things the priest did, he makes atonement, he makes intercession. Those are two responsibilities of the high priest. He makes atonement for the people. He makes intercession for the people. Why does he make intercession for the people? Because your average Israelite can't just walk into the Holy of Holies and approach God. He has to be the intermediator that gets you there. Okay? Question. Here's the question. Old Testament now. This is Old Testament. Which people was the high priest both praying and atoning or which people was the high priest both praying and atoning for who was he praying for and atoning for who was he doing it for the israelites how do we know that 
He's got their names as a memorial when he goes in there. Let me just ask you a question. Did he have the Amorites embedded in the ephod? Did he have the Egyptians? So, when the high priest performed his duties on the Day of Atonement, was he praying for and atoning for any other people besides the Israelites? Was he representing the Amorite high priest? Was he representing Pharaoh? Was he representing the Philistines? Why not? They were not God's people. The atonement was not provided for them. Now, here's the point. It would have been more than sufficient to cover their sins and forgive them if God had intended for the atonement to do that. The atonement was of great worth every time that the priest went in there and did it, but it was the intention of it was not to cover the sins of the Amorites, the sins of the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Philistines. Okay, But it had infinite value if that was its intention. It would have covered their sins if God had intended it, but he didn't. He intended it to cover just for the Israelites. Now let's go to the New Testament. What have we been looking at all along? Jesus what? Makes atonement for the people, makes intercession for the people as the high priest. Is Jesus? Have we not looked at Jesus being the high priest? Just like Aaron. Now obviously Jesus didn't wear a linen ephod when he died on the cross. But did Jesus make atonement and make intercession? Does the Bible teach that Jesus... Let's just ask this. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is a high priest? Does the Bible teach that Jesus makes atonement? Does the Bible teach that Jesus makes intercession? The question that becomes not does he do those things. The question is for whom does he do those things? And what was God's intention in him doing that? So let me give a comparison. Jesus' death on the cross is of infinite value and is more than sufficient to atone for and forgive the sins of every single person who ever lived and will live, but that is not God's intent. His intention in Jesus as the high priest is that the atonement is only efficient or effective for those for whom Jesus intercedes. Can that be everybody or only those who draw near to God in faith? Okay, now you're making great assertions, but let me show you in the Bible where those come from because you're going right where I'm going. <laughs> Question, if Jesus makes atonement and makes intercession for those who draw near to God, the question then becomes, who will draw near to God in faith? Who will believe? Let's just ask a question. Does everybody believe? Will everybody believe? Where there'll be people that die and go to hell that never believe. Okay. So the question then becomes, who believes? Here's the real question. Who believes and why do they believe? Now let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 6. And I want to show you three places in John where Jesus is doing something and again, I'm t this is hard. I'm bringing this up as controversial stuff to make you think. I'm not saying you have to agree. I'm not saying you have to buy it. You have to swallow it. I'm not saying that you have to, um, to come to the same conclusions. I'm just trying to challenge your thinking and make you think and make you struggle with some things that the Bible um, appears to teach. So John 6, 37 through 44. 
This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. The people are coming to Jesus because he's given them free food. They want to make him king. And Jesus says, listen, you guys aren't understanding. Um, I'm the bread of life that's come down from heaven. And then let's pick up in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that whoever, or that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, let me teach you what Jesus is saying here. Go back to verse 37. Let's just look at what Jesus says, okay? Let's let Jesus speak for himself. What is he saying? Jesus says, all what? That the Father gives me. So the Father gives a people to who? Jesus. The Father gives a people to Jesus. And what does the Bible say will happen? All that the Father gives to me, what will happen? They will come. Does it say they may come? They might come? It says they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will what? Never cast out. So you will be secure. So you've got the logic here. The Father has given a people to Jesus. And all, all that the Father gives to me will come They will come to Jesus, and when they do come, they will be secure in Jesus. Here's the question. Does every single person come to Jesus? Why not? Did the Father give everybody to Jesus? Because if the Father gave everybody to Jesus, what will happen to those people? They will come. Now, go down and look at the logic that Jesus says in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, Jesus, you don't make sense. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. But now you're saying no one can come to me. So can people come without something happening to them? What has to happen to people to come? The Father has to, what does it say there? Verse 44. No one, unless the Father who sent me draws them, and they will come. So, here's the question. The Father gives a people to Jesus. They can't come on their own because they're sinners and they can't do it. The Father must draw them, and once the Father draws them, they will come to Jesus. So here's the question. Does everybody come to Jesus? Does the Father draw everybody? And does the Father give everybody? So who is this all that the Father gives? We can call it by different names. Believers, the elect, sheep, the church. 
When did the Father give these people to Jesus? Before the foundation of the world, a people were given to Jesus by the Father. They will come. Okay. Now, let's go to John 10. And let's see what Jesus says in John 10, 22. John 10, 22. At the time of the Feast of Dedication that took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. These works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My, excuse me, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Look at verse 26. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. All that the Father gives to me will what? Will come to me. Jesus is saying, you're not what? You're not coming to me. You're not believing in me. Why are you not believing in me? Because you're not my sheep. You haven't been given. The Father hasn't given you to me. Because if the Father had given you to me, you would believe. Now, we'd oftentimes want to reverse that, wouldn't we? What would we tend to say? You believe and then you become a sheep. What's Jesus saying? You're already a sheep and then you believe. But you can't believe on your own until God enables you to believe. Okay. John 17, 1 through 9. Yes, go ahead. Does that mean that, like, going back to what you were talking about earlier, does that mean that even the ones who have not ever heard of Jesus... They are truly sheep. They will somehow find their way. I will. I would word it a different way, I would say this. Well, let's go back to John ten, and let me answer your question. Okay, that's a great question. John ten says this. John ten fourteen through sixteen. John ten fourteen through sixteen. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Okay, so here's the way I would word it, Risa. God has his scattered sheep all throughout all tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples. The scattered sheep. Okay, if they are his... God will make sure that they hear the gospel and respond and come to faith. I wouldn't word it that they find their way. I would say God will make sure that the gospel gets to them because they are his sheep and he will make sure that, that Jesus gathers them in. And that's what's done through missions and evangels and the things like that. Does, that. does that make sense? Okay. So John 17. And then we'll deal... This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus, okay? So, what's Jesus? He's the high priest. What's he doing? 
He's praying here right before he's interceding. He's, he's interceding right here right before he's making atonement. So you see Jesus entering in the holy, holy, holy of holies, if you will. And what's he doing? He's bearing the ephod of the names of his people. And he's praying for his people right before he goes to make atonement for his people. So the question becomes, is he praying for the same people he's going to go die for? Or does he pray for everybody? and then go die for everybody? Or is he praying for specific people and dying for those people? Let's let Jesus answer that for us. Verse seven, or chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to do what? To give eternal life to who? All you have given him. Where do we just see that? All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know the truth that I have come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Who's Jesus praying for right here? Jesus says, I am praying for those that you've given me out of the world that will come to me, that you will draw to me, my sheep. Who's Jesus not praying for? The world. So the question then becomes, does Jesus make intercession for the world? Does Jesus make atonement for the world? And if he does make atonement for the entire world and he makes intercession for the entire world, the question you've got to ask is, then what's, why are they in hell suffering if he made atonement for them? Well, you may say, well, they didn't believe in him, and so that's their free choice not to believe in him. But then should not he be interceding on the same behalf of the people he's making atonement for? And so are the people in hell being inter- interceded on behalf of? Okay, so here's, here's the point. Again, you can take it or leave it tonight. The Father elects certain people to be saved before the foundation of the world. Jesus dies on the cross specifically for those people and intercedes on their behalf. Then the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to those same people by causing them to be born again and giving them the gifts of repentance and faith. Now, I want you to think about the Trinity here for a moment. What if there's a division in the Trinity? What if God gave a people to Jesus and yet they may or may not come to him or the Holy Spirit doesn't actually have the power to bring them. Have you ever thought about this? Think about this. Given the free will of man to choose and given that Jesus only died to make salvation a possibility, a hypothetical reality, He didn't really purchase anyone in particular. And given that the Holy Spirit can only go so far and has to respond to the sinner's choice before regenerating them, then it follows that there could be a possibility that nobody would ever be saved. Have you thought about that? 
If Jesus died on the cross to make salvation possible, but did not die for anyone specific, there could be a possibility that no one would ever be saved. Now, why are people saved? Is it because they're smart to accept the gospel? Or God has a sovereign power to save a sinner from first to last and make sure it happens according to His grace alone. Now, with 10 minutes left, and I may have rattled your world and made you think and challenged your belief system, I give you opportunity to challenge back, to ask questions back, to, to process this maybe new concept to you that you can chew on, choose to accept, reject. It's a secondary issue. Yes, Fred. What does all this tell us about a three-year-old baby or a three-day-old baby who died? Great question. What does the Bible teach about babies that die in infancy, stillborn birth babies, aborted babies, my son Zachary who's mentally incapable? Okay. The Bible doesn't give explicit teaching on this, but this is what I believe, and I think the Bible teaches this, that all babies that die in abortions, in miscarriages, in stillbirths, in infancy, they go to heaven, that all babies go to heaven. Um, now, there's the proverbial, what's the age of accountability? Now, we use the term age of accountability as if there's a certain age that somebody reaches. The Bible never says, like, when you, raise, when you reach seven, you're morally accountable, but when you face judgment, you are going to be judged whether you knew right and wrong based upon the deeds you did in the body. Okay. So is an infant able to know right from wrong and make the choice to understand truth from error, right from wrong? No, they're not at an age where they can make that. They're still a sinner. They're still born sinners, but they go to heaven based upon the death of Christ in their place and think about Zachary for a moment. This is, I've had to process this because here's the point. My son Zachary can't use his free will to choose Jesus. Why? He can't comprehend. So if it's up for him to use his free will to trust Jesus, would he ever be saved? So the question then becomes, the Bible teaches, I think, there's two examples. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet while he was in his mother's womb. John the Baptist had the Holy Spirit when he was still in his mother's womb. So I think you've got some biblical examples of God regenerating or causing the new birth or causing a baby to be born again before they're born based upon the merits of Christ. They just never had an opportunity to express it with repentance and faith. But based upon the blood of Christ, based upon regeneration, I believe, and this has been the traditional Southern Baptist view, Presbyterian view, it's been the traditional view of the church that all babies dying in infancy, stillbirth, abortion, mentally incapable, all go to heaven. Does that answer your question, Fred, or is that? Okay, yeah. There's some extreme views that would say that you really don't know if that baby went to heaven or hell. It depends on whether they were elect or not. Um, I don't think the Bible gives us enough information to know that. Um, what I would believe is that God does, in His grace, you know, uh, send babies to heaven. Is that 
Okay. Now, there's a different question that you didn't ask, and that is, what about the person that's morally capable of understanding truth and yet is never heard? That person doesn't go to heaven. That person goes to hell based upon their sin that they're accountable for. So, yes, Tiffany. There's no sin that keeps you out of heaven except for apostasy that we talked about a few weeks ago. And abortion is not apostasy. Murder is not apostasy. Premarital sex is not apostasy. Homosexual sex is not an apostasy. The Bible teaches that Paul was a murderer. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. So based upon the Bible saying that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near, if a person has had an abortion and they've committed that sin, that doesn't mean that they're outside of God's grasp. There's still an opportunity for them to repent and draw near to Christ. And if they come to Him in repentance and faith, they will be totally forgiven of that sin, even though they may have to live with the dire consequences of knowing they've done that their entire life. Now, they can have the assurance that their baby's in heaven and they may struggle with guilt, but they can be forgive, forgiven of all their sins. So there's no, I'm not going to say abortion is the one sin that you can't be forgiven for because the Bible doesn't teach that. I know a lot of women, not a lot, but I know of stories of women who've had abortions that are Christians now and they've, they've been freed from that guilt and God has wiped their conscience and they have the freedom in Christ to know that all their sins are forgiven and that they, that, that they know they're going to heaven. Does that answer your question? Your question? Okay. Yes, Deshauna. Okay, so can we go back to where... Yes, you can go back. Yes. <laughs> um, so if they are, they never heard about God and so they go to hell, then what is the Bible? And you've talked about this before, but I just want to refresh. Um, so why did God, what was God's plan then in having those people go to hell? Like what was his vision behind that? Like, yeah, why, why did God do that do in the first place? Yeah, yes. what was God's plan? That's a question that the Bible doesn't answer that I wish it did. Um, The Bible does not tell us specifically why God chooses some for salvation and others not. All we know is that Ephesians says it's to the praise of His glorious grace. Now, here's what we can know. We're not chosen because we're that great. It wasn't wasn't like God was up in heaven and said, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, you look good, I'm going to pick you, you don't look good. All of us are dead in sin and don't deserve to be saved. And so the fact that God chooses some and doesn't choose others doesn't mean that the, the people that are chosen are any better. All of us are bad. Okay. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things He's chosen to, uh, to reveal to us are to be obeyed. There's some secret things of the Lord that we don't know why He does what He does. We just look at the biblical data and say, Hmm, this is taught. I may not fully understand it. I may have a different viewpoint on it. The Bible's silent on that. I've got to live with the tension of God not telling me all the answers. But that's a deep question. Why did God set it up that way? I guess is that your ultimate question? Yeah, right. Why did God from the very beginning right. have that plan? And, and I don't know the answer to that. Okay. <laughs> and if somebody does, maybe they can answer this. All right, we've got just a... Yeah, yeah. And again, guys, 
let me say this. Whether you believe Jesus died on the cross for every single person that ever lived or whether you believe it's a limited atonement to only the elect, what's the one thing that you have to do? You're not saved by believing in a certain view of the atonement. You're saved by faith in Christ. And how does a person have faith in Christ? They've got to hear. So the thing that we want to camp out on as a church is not these minor details. The big thing we want to camp out on is we want every single person that walks through the doors of this church, every single person in our community, every single person that we go to, we want to give every single person the opportunity to hear the gospel in such a way that they can repent and believe to be saved. Charles Spurgeon said this, it would be so nice if everybody that was elect in London had a white stripe down the back of their shirt. And I would only go preach to them. It would be real easy. Just pick them out. But I can't do that. We don't know who, whichever view you hold to, everybody's a candidate for salvation because you don't know. Your job is to tell the gospel to every single person and let God sort out the details. And if you believe it's their free will, then you still have to live with the fact that you share it and they use their free will. If you believe God elects them, you still got to share it so that it happens. Whether you believe in free will or election, the one thing that happens is nobody's saved without repenting and believing. And how do they repent and believe? they got to hear the gospel. What are you responsible for? Sharing the gospel so that they can repent and believe. The question then becomes why, and that's a secondary issue. Does that make sense? So the place we want to camp out on is the gospel, making sure everybody hears the gospel, receives the gospel, understands the gospel, the gospel's clear, that they understand repentance and faith, that they need to believe in Jesus, and that we call everybody to that hope in Christ that their sins can be forgiven. Nobody ever in the Bible, do you never hear this in the Bible? God loves you if you're one of the elect, and you better make sure you're one of the elect. And here's how you make sure you're one of the elect. You just sit there and wait to be zapped, and then God will let you know you're one of the elect. And as I'm preaching this message, you really don't need to listen to me because you're one of the elect. Do you ever hear that from the Bible? What does the Bible say? Repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins, regardless of who you are. That's the message. Does that make sense?